Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the book of Romans chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us that the spiritual gift of prophecy is used to edify, exhort, comfort, and reveal. Today we'll see the danger of misusing the gift of prophecy and examples of false prophets found in Scripture. Uh, turn your Bibles when you please to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. I, I want to uh, read from verse number 1 to verse number 8, and then we will pick up uh, our text in verse number 6. Verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God have dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given unto us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. But we've been looking at the vital subject of gifts and we've called your attention to the fifth point of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 dealing with this subject, which we find in verse number 6 to 8, where Paul gives you a profile on these spiritual gifts. If you recall, in my previous message, uh, I said that you can take all of the spiritual gifts and there's universal agreement that you can categorize all the spiritual gifts under three headings. There are what you call sign gifts. These are gifts like healing and miracles, the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. These are the sign gifts. Then there are what you may call uh, speaking gifts. These are gifts that have to do with speech. And Paul mentions in this passage three of them. They talk about uh, teaching and exhortation and prophesying. These are verbal gifts, speaking gifts. There are others as well that he mentions in uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and then also others mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. So there are sign gifts, there are speaking gifts, and then there are serving gifts. Uh, Paul mentions in this passage four of those serving gifts. He talks about ministering, he talks about helps, he talks about ruling, and he talks about mercy. These are things that we do. These are the three main categories of gifts that we find in the Bible. Now it's worth noting that when Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, uh, 12 to 14. The Apostle Paul wrote that book in about 54 AD. 
And it's very significant that when he wrote that book, he talked about these same gifts. He talks about these gifts of healing and miracles, etc., etc. Four years later, when Paul wrote the book of Romans in 58 AD, you find that Paul does not mention the same gifts. He just mentioned the service gifts and the speaking gifts. It's also important that when you read the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul wrote that in 60 AD, two years after he wrote the book of Romans. Again, you find no mention of these sign gifts in the book of Ephesians. And then when Peter wrote the first epistle of 1 Peter in 64 AD, that is 12 years after Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, there's no mention of the sign gifts as well. This is why perhaps most conservative um, evangelical scholars believe that the sign gifts were temporary confirmatory gifts. Gifts that God gave to the church to establish and to vindicate and authenticate the ministry of the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament who laid the foundation for the church. A case can be shown uh, if you were to study both the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever God starts something new, something out of the ordinary, it is always preceded by miracles, signs and wonders, because you have to authenticate that movement. Remember that Christianity is something completely new. Christianity is not Judaism. It was born in the womb of Judaism, but it's not Judaism. See? The Jews do not worship a triune God. The Jews worship yeah, God whose unity is one God, but not a triune God as we do. The Jews do not worship Jesus Christ. They think that Jesus Christ was an imposter. But when it first started, it came out of Judaism. So when God started this new work, there was needed for signs and wonders so that what the apostles and prophets were saying could be authenticated and vindicated. You remember what Nicodemus said? No man can do these things except... God be with him. It was these signs and wonders that established the foundation of Christianity. But when the foundation is laid, there's no longer need now for the authentication of the foundation. It's already laid. You're now building on the foundation. And that's why you have these other gifts. Of course, that is an interpretation. And uh, I believe it's the correct interpretation. I also uh, believe that uh, the Christian life was designed to be lived not by a continuous display of miracles and signs and wonders. <laughs> the Christian life was designed to be lived in a very ordinary way, exercising faith and obedience in God. That's how God intended. As a matter of, when God made man in the Garden of Eden, there was not a spectacular display of miracle, miracle, miracle. Adam lived simply by communicating with God. That was all it was. He was to, he was to communicate with God and obey God and live a life of faith. That's how God intended us to live this ordinary life. See? Not that you must see a sign and a wonder and a miracle every day and you constantly live. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ made a statement that is very astounding. You know what he said? It is only an evil generation that wants signs and wonders. I repeat, it is only an evil generation that wants signs and wonders, that must live by signs and wonders. So I am saying to you this morning, that it is God's design that we, as we move through this life, we live quite an ordinary life simply by operating on faith, and that faith leads to obedience. That's why the Bible calls the Christian faith the obedience of faith. 
The kind of faith that leads you to live a life of obedience. So when you hear people professing that they are Christians and that they know God and so on, and they don't live an obedient life, no one thinks it's a fake profession. It's not real. Real faith will move you to live a life of obedience to God. What's the use of saying I'm saved and I'm not living a life of obedience to God? When you got saved, you said you surrendered to him. That's what you're saying. You're saying that Jesus Christ is your Lord. See, You're a disciple of his. How then can you claim to be a disciple of his and not live in obedience to the master? It, makes, it only makes sense to those who have the schizophrenic brain. Only, only. People who can hold opposites at the same time and, uh, and, and can't reason. And by the way, today is not the day when people reason. I hope you know that. We now call it the postmodern world. The modern world was we were controlled by reason. The postmodern world is that you we don't have anything really to believe. There's nothing absolute to believe. We just live by how we feel, by our experience, etc. The standard of living that honors God is a life of faith, a life that is marked by obedience. And by the way, this can easily be confirmed by looking at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where... Uh, the characteristic that is highlighted about those heroes of the past, the great men of the past, the Bible says, by faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Moses. By faith, even Rahab, the harlot. By faith. All of them live by faith in obedience to God. That's what the Christian life was designed to be. So there's something nefarious when a person is always asking and looking for signs and miracles and wonders. See, something completely nefarious about that. Uh, and the Bible uh, is clear uh, about this matter of obedience and faith. I also remembered what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, if you were to ask one question of people in here, what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to live? But what are we supposed to live? No, that's one question. Answer that one question. There's only one answer. Jesus Christ himself said, man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from God. We are to live by the book. We are to be guided by biblical principles. We are not to be enamored with signs and wonders and, and miracles. No, God can still work miracles. God can still do signs. But that's not what we live for. That's not what we live by. We live by faith. And faith leads us to a life of obedience in compliance uh, with God's word. This is why when you come to these later epistles, uh, when the Apostle Paul is writing on this subject and he's dealing with, with gifts, uh, four years later, six years later, ten years after, uh, there's not the emphasis on the miraculous and the signs and wonders that you find when he first wrote the book of Corinthians. In, in all three other books that he wrote after that, there's no mention of these miracles because they laid the foundations for the church. The church was now built on that, that foundation. So when we come now to the scripture, you know, we see that here in Romans, uh, which is written four years after Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, the emphasis that Paul lays here is on these serving gifts and on these uh, speaking gifts. Now, you can see why this is true. 
What is the purpose of the church? What's the twofold purpose of the church? Why, what's the church supposed to do? No, you, you, you dare not ask that question to the public any longer because people don't need to know, don't seem to know what the church is supposed to do. There are those that think the church must build houses for people and put them in it. I met a young man who was always down here by the gas station. I've always given him something. Pastor, please help me. Please help me. Uh, he always wanted me to give him like $10. I said, I can't give you $10, man. Here's $2. Somebody's going to give you two more. Nobody will give you two more. But he always wants, I mean, he seems to stipulate what he wants. He's a beggar and still telling me what he wants. But I, I'm always very compassionate towards him. I met him the other day, uh, this week, and I saw him again. I feel sorry for him. He's a young man. I, 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 I really wish I could just take him from off the streets, work on his mind, give him a skill, and put him back in the marketplace to become a useful citizen. That's, that's what I wish I could do. And I, I told him, I said, you young man, I'm going to help you one of these days. Believe it or not, I'm going to help you one of these days. And then the, the lady said, you're going to build something for him? I said, yeah, we're going to build a rehab center. <laughs> and we're going to put him in the rehab center. You can work on his brain. We're going to renew his mind. We can get him saved. And then we're going to give him a skill. And then we're going to put him back in the marketplace. But here's the first thing she was thinking about, building a house for him. That's what people think the church is supposed to do. We engage in social programs, but social programs is not the objective. The objective is to save people, not to put them in. You know, we can, we can, take, build, we can create a whole housing area and put all these sinners in it. They'll just mess up in a few years. Until you change a man and change his heart and change his mind. What have you accomplished in his life? You just teach him to be smarter and now that he has resources, by the way, when you give him those resources, he uses those resources for his ultimate purpose and selfish means. And often that means hurting other people rather than helping people because he himself is not changed. So when the Apostle Paul uh, is dealing with this matter, he's really talking about the need for the serving gifts and also the speaking gifts to fulfill the two purposes of the church. Here are the two purposes of the church. The church is founded for two sole reasons. Number one, it is, it is founded to evangelize people and get them saved. That's the great commission. See? That's what the church is for. See? To get people reconverted and saved. But after we've gotten them saved, there's a second work. And that is to edify them, to build them up, to mature them in Christ. That's the whole purpose of the church. See? I wish today that uh, the church would get back to its founding purposes. But it's, it's found himself trying to do so many things. It's got all these tentacles out there and it can't get the main job done whatsoever because it has lost its focus. And the Apostle Paul, by emphasizing these ministries of serving and service, is recognizing that this is the ministries that are needed to fulfill the two purposes of church, which is evangelism and edification. So in Romans chapter 12 and verse 6 to 8, in listing the profile of these gifts, Paul mentions seven of these gifts. And uh, he, these gifts, as I mentioned, can be broken down into two areas. Speaking gifts, prophecy, teaching, and exhortation. And serving gifts, ministry, giving, ruling, and mercy. Those are the seven gifts that Paul mentioned in Romans. And they can be broken down under those two headings. Now, last Sunday, I began to pick up on one of those gifts called the gift of prophecy. And I was attempting to answer two questions last Sunday. Number one is, what really is the gift of prophecy? I gave you five different views on what the gift of prophecy is. And uh, I pointed out to you that in the final analysis, 
the understanding of what this gift is, it is a direct word of inspired truth that comes from the Holy Spirit through an individual to the church or a member in the church. That's what the gift of, of, of prophecy is. It's a direct, instantaneous word uh, that is given. It is something that is immediate and specific to a particular church or a particular person. That's the gift of prophecy. That's what it is. Uh, and I, I, I try to make, sure, make you sure not only that what is the gift, but how was this gift to be used? I did not go outside scripture. I took you to the book of Corinthians chapter 14 and showed you clearly that this gift must be used in four ways. In Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, Paul said the gift of prophecy is there to edify. The word edify is from the word akadumo. And it simply means to build up, that like you build a house. So the person who had the gift of prophecy gets a word, a direct word from God that helps to build up someone that needs a word from God. That's what it is. It's not you prophesying about the future. It's about edification. And when a man claims I got the gift of prophecy, it means that he has a word from God to say to that person, this is what you need as you mature in Christ. Edification, build that person up. Words that build people up. Secondly, Paul says it is given for exhortation. In Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, the word exhortation is the word paraclesis. And the word paraclesis means para means to side and kale means to call. It's the call along the side of. This word, by the way, uh, exhortation, is always anticipatory. It always has to do with something that is futuristic about a person's life. So when a person has to get the prophecy, not only there's a direct word that edifies a person, but a person needs direction in terms, I'm trying to make a decision, Pastor. I'm trying to make, the, should I marry this person or should I change my job? Should I migrate to, to America? What should I do? They're in, a, they're in a situation where they're not certain what to do. A person who has the gift of prophecy gets a word from the Lord to speak to that person and say, listen, I believe this is what God is asking you to do. It has to do with the future. And it has to do with something that somebody is concerned about, but they're not too sure what direction to go. And God uses you to speak to that person so that that person is guided in the correct choice that they make. That's the gift of prophecy. The third thing that Paul says is that it's the... It's a gift of comfort. He said edify, encourage, and comfort. The word comfort is from the word power. It means alongside or near. And mutos, which means to speak. So you're coming close by to a person and speaking gentle, tender words of a person. To the person. But it has to do with trials and testing the person is going through. And they can't seem to handle those situations. They're having difficulty to get their bearings because they're so weighted upon them. And then God chooses you to go to that person and comfort them with soothing, calm words of wisdom. And perhaps give them a perspective on what they're going through and how they can handle it. So you not only edify the person, you not only exhort and encourage the person, but you also comfort the person with soothing words and gentle words that are wise words to help that person bear under that weight of trial or testing that they're currently going through. And then the fourth thing that Paul said about this gift in Corinthians uh, chapter 14 is that it is used to expose the secret hearts of the unbeliever. Paul says when you're prophesying and the unsaved man comes into the church, 
and you are prophesying what is revealed. His secrets of his heart are made manifest so that he falls down before God and worship God and repents. In other words, he has secrets, he's hiding. And when a person begins to speak, that person says, you know, how did he know about that thing? Nobody knows about that thing, but God knows about it. And so it's revealed to the person. That ever happened to you? You ever felt the pastor talking to you? That he knows exactly what you're doing or something you've been through? And you are convinced somebody whispered in the pastor's ear that, you know, hey, this is, you need to talk about this. Well, a person who has the gift of prophecy has that kind of insight. And they're able to say things to the person. They don't even recognize sometimes, by the way, that what they're saying has got that person uneasy because that person is trying, how did he know this about me? I think I told the church this, and I'll share this with you because some of you are new this morning. When I was a, before I was saved, I was a peeping Tom. I was a peeping Tom. I would never do evil, but I loved the people. I was a people. And I would never forget the pastor that came to the church and preached, how I got saved that night. When the man started to talk about going down on the beach and getting behind the trees and peeping and so on and so forth, I wonder, but who told this man about me? It convinced me so much. I could not believe that the man could come from St. Vincent. I never met the man. He's preaching the word and he's telling me exactly what I was doing. For the first time in my life, I came under so much conviction. I could not believe a man knew, my, knew me. I mean, he knew the details, the secret, nasty details of my life. And he took the, the dirty flannel and he put it before the people. But the people didn't know. Only me was there. And I said, man, like, those are my dirty linens. How did he know that? See? The Lord had given him a word, a message. See? And as he spoke, I came under tremendous conviction. That's what you call the gift of exhortation. It has the capacity to reveal things that people have hidden. And by the way, every single one of you got some secrets. Secrets. You know why you call them secrets? Because you don't want anybody to know what you did. Some of you probably sitting here have committed an abortion. Nobody knows that. Mom doesn't know that. But I'm telling you, it has happened. And when we get up and speak of abortion, you, you wiggle in your seat. You, know, you, you, you do every kind of thing. You say, but I didn't know somebody knew that. Some of you have been on the beach. Some of you have been in a car. Some of you have done some things you should never have done. You know that. Some of you have embezzled funds. You've taken things that don't belong to you. You've stolen. Secrets. You don't let anybody know that. Some of you have done some very bizarre things. That if people were to know, they would say, but that can't be you. That's not you. But that was what you used to be. You're no longer that person. But these are secrets you don't want people to know. The prophet who has this gift is able to sometimes go into your very inner soul and twist the sword. Make you bleed a little bit on the inside and then pour in the balm and the wine, the gospel, to salve it and to cure it. See? That's what the prophet does. So the third thing I did uh, in my previous sermon is to distinguish between the gift of prophecy and the gift of pastorate. Because there's some people who say, but wait a minute, if, if this gift is about uh, encouraging and edifying people, if it's also about exposing uh, people, et cetera, et cetera, the temptation and comfort of people, they, well, that's what a pastor does. That's it. But when you read Corinthians, he mentions the prophet and he mentions the pastor. So the prophet who is not the pastor. But the people who are always trying to uh, conflate these things. And the reason why they pointed out is this, the, the difference between being the pastor 
and uh, being the prophet is that the matter of immediacy. When you have the prophetic gift, it means it's something God speaks to you directly about. Okay? Directly about that you are able to share with somebody. A pastor gets into the pulpit and he's not saying, God, fill my mouth. Just fill my head. The most ignoramus and the stupidest man in the pulpit is a man who gets into the pulpit and says, I didn't prepare, I didn't study, I didn't research, I didn't investigate. I'm just going to sit here and let God just fill my mind. Fill my mind. See? The pastor is supposed to study. Study to show yourself approved unto God. You're supposed to research and investigate. He's not one that gets into the pulpit and says, well, I don't have to say to you folks everything, but whatever the Lord tells me, I'm going to tell you. A lot of times when these people speak, they speak into the ear. And people sit there saying, but why in the time did I waste my time coming? There's no study, there's no diligence in this whole matter. And uh, I need to make... The other thing I talked about is that this gift of prophecy is given to both genders. Paul says that women were prophesying in the church and he warns them about prophesying without a covering. But he didn't deny that they had the right to prophesy. See? So clearly, and then we come to the book of Acts, we find that um, Philip had three daughters who prophesied. Not that they were prophets, but they had the gift of prophecy and they could prophesy. So, but the pastoral gift is restricted to men. Read it in, in Timothy. He does not allow a woman to teach or usurp authority in the church over men. Women are not supposed to be preachers. It is outside the domain. They do not meet the gender qualification. See? The qualifications of a pastor is that he must be the husband of one wife. Now today, you can't say that. Because women can be the husband of a husband. You know that. See? The confu- Listen, I, I thought about this thing for just a moment. A lot of this gender confusion is designed to undermine the very authority of the scripture. I have no doubt in my mind about that whatsoever. This transgenderism and all this thing that's happening is designed to undermine the scripture. There are only two genders, male and female. You should go to sleep saying that every night. There are only two genders, male and female. Only two genders, male and female. I saw a supreme judge who was was appointed supreme judge who said she doesn't know what a woman is. She could never be a judge if I had a judge on that matter. She doesn't know what a judge is. I saw another one that was being, um, who teaches at Princeton University. They just asked her the other day, can a man have children? And she threw right the question at the guy. Can a man have children? Holly said, no, a man can't have children. And then she said, you're transphobic. They use labels. Labels. That only works with people who don't know the truth. And who live according to the stats and what the, the computer, what the, uh, the, the public say and what the news media say. But when you're grounded in the truth, none of that moves you. As a matter of fact, I will tell you this. Truth simplifies life. It makes everything simple for you. See? This is wrong, this is right. Yeah. That's what truth does. So when these other people are struggling to deal with these issues and spending nights trying to decide what... I'm at home sitting down saying... This is what God said. That's the answer. So my mind is not in turmoil when it comes to issues that we face in the modern world. Because to my mind, the Bible simplifies life because it's the embodiment of truth. Now, I said that because I wanted to be very, very careful that we don't end up leading people to believe uh, that they, because they 
believe they had the gift of prophecy. They encourage people. They edify people. And they comfort people. Therefore, I should be a pastor. See? Uh, that, you've got to be very, very careful. You've got to sometimes make very clear distinctions because we're living in a very confused age where one pastor is saying this, another pastor, one church is saying this, and the other church is saying this, And people say, but I don't want to believe. You know what I believe? The Bible. Judge every pastor by the Bible, not by what he says, but if what he says aligns with the Bible. That's how you judge whether or not a church is correct or not correct, whether the movement is correct or not correct. Not because somebody says it and he has a collar. You know, these, these people got their collar. They, oh, he, he claims to be a prophet. He claims to be a pastor. He claims to be an apostle. His authority is derived from Scripture. And if his authority goes beyond Scripture, he's a false prophet. Simple as that. See. So I am just pointing out to you that uh, we need to make these very subtle distinctions that Paul uh, was concerned, and that's why I believe he mentions these four details about this gift of prophecy. He just didn't mention prophet. He mentioned these four things. This is what a prophet does. This is what a gift it does. Now, there's one last thing I wanted to deal with this morning, and uh, that has to do with the fact that the Apostle Paul has to deal with the third issue. Not only what is a prophet, how was this gift supposed to be used? But the next question is this. Are there any parameters, any guidelines to be imposed on this prophetic office? What are the parameters of how this gift is to be used? What's the manner in which this gift is to be used? The Apostle Paul is very careful to stipulate certain controlling parameters around this gift. That's why he goes on to say in the verse, look at it again, verse 6. Having then different gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy. But notice what he says, according, according to the proportion of faith. What Paul is doing, Paul is saying, okay, you've got the gift. I want you, I'm going to draw a line around that gift and tell you that how you use it, these are the guidelines to tell you how to use it. it you use that gift according to the proportion of faith. According to the measure of faith that you have. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, there's always a danger of when a person has a supernatural gift or a special gift. There's always a danger of abusing that gift or misusing that gift. And uh, this is why there need to be certain stipulations about the use of that gift. And I hope you understand when you look at the Bible that there are always people who make a false claim to having these spiritual gifts. Always. As a matter of fact, there are people because of their egotistic, they're egotistical. They want the limelight. They want the preeminence. They want to be considered above other people. They want people to, to be, they want to control people. They want people to think that they're some kind of a superman or superwoman. So they're always taking things that are spiritual and exaggerating them in order to make something spectacular so people's eyes are focused upon them, that they've got something different than the other person. I shared with you in a previous sermon on this subject that that is what happened to me when I was in St. Vincent. I was uh, living in a house, the upstairs, and the church was on the, just to the right of me. And I 
uh, would hear all of this noise and all this excitement and this commotion and, and so on and so forth. I look over one time and I saw people jumping over the benches and throwing down the benches and people speaking in all kinds of tongues. And I am saying, wait a minute, they got something I don't have. Honestly, I would say, maybe they got something I don't have. And then one of our ladies uh, from our church had left our church and gone over there because she wanted to be where the action is, the excitement. She didn't like solid expository preaching to that. That was boring. She, she wanted activity. So after the service, now my, the house was living right, the road was right in front of me, the, the building was, so she was passing. I said, uh, I said, Eileen, come here a minute. I said, Eileen, come here a minute. I want you to be honest with me this morning. I really want, I want you to tell me what happened in there. What were you doing? And honest to God, I think I told you this. Eileen looked at me and said, Pastor, I was doing just what everybody was doing. So they're jumping over the pew. I jump over the pew too. They're, they're speaking in tongues. I speak in tongues too. <laughs> this is the madness that's going on in the church. And you're pressured to do it. Because if you don't do it, you're not baptized with the Spirit. So you are almost psychologically uh, pressured to begin to act like they're acting. And there's no reality to it. And by the way, that's why after they've gone through that whole process and they realize there's nothing, they start understanding that this is a fib. I need to get back to the word. I need to hear what God's will is and start living the cause God's will because I must live by faith and I must live by obedience to God's word. And then they begin to grow and develop. See? The confusion and this activity is of no use for their spiritual maturity. It is just a kick for the moment. It lasts for the moment, but then during the week, you can't maintain yourself at that level. The point I'm making here, the Apostle Paul is talking about these gifts, and now he comes to this gift of prophecy, and he realizes one thing. This gift is subject to abuse. I've got to draw a line and tell this person exactly how this gift, the manner in which it must be done according to the proportion of faith. Can I point out to you that there has always been false prophets? Could I point out to you that whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there were always false prophets? Could I also say to you from the scripture, it is very clear that the times in which we live, there will be a proliferation of false prophets according to what Jesus taught and the apostles taught. So this is not the only generation that have people claiming to speak for God. And they're just an empty vessel Speaking not for God, but for the enemy. See? Look with me for just a moment uh, at the Old Testament for just a few seconds. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 8 reads. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law do me not. The pastors also transgress against me. I notice, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walk after things for their own profit. Even in Jeremiah's time, you got false prophets who said, I'm speaking for God, but Jeremiah said, they're speaking for Baal. The false God Baal. And the reason why they're doing it is for profit. Profit. Look at Jeremiah chapter 20. I look at verse number 1 to 6 for just a moment. I'm going to read that for you. 
Jeremiah chapter 20. And verse 1 to 6. Now Pasher, the son of Emmer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in stocks uh, that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it came to pass on the morrow that Pasher brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pusher, but Magadishabib. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword for the enemies, and thy eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hands of the kings of Babylon, and he will carry them away into captivity, and shall slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of the city and all the labor thereof, and all the precious things thereof, and all the treasure of the kings of Judah, will I give it unto the hands of their enemies, which shall spoil them and take them into carry them into Babylon. Verse 6. And thou, Pasher, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity, and thou shalt come to Babylon, and there thou shalt die, and shalt be buried there, thou and all thy friends, to whom thou hast what? Prophesied lies. I do not know why we are such a gullible generation that we don't understand that on the global scene, there are people claiming to be prophets who are prophesying lies. We don't seem to have the discernment to understand that there are men and women claiming, making claims who are prophesying lies. Here's Jeremiah, the true prophet of God. Here's another guy, Pastor. He slaps Jeremiah because Jeremiah says, You're going into Babylon. You and all the people going into Babylon. But he has been prophesying that we're not going to Babylon. God is going to protect us. And this true prophet is made to seem as though he is the one that's not for the people. The false prophet is made to believe that he is for the people. Jeremiah is giving you a negative message. We are giving you positivity. That's the common theme today. Positivity. Everything must be positive. You must not speak anything negative. You're too negative, Pastor. You're too negative. Well, we are living in the age where of make-believe, so everybody wants to hear something pleasant. So there are false prophets. Let me point out other thing. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Show you another one quickly. Jeremiah 23, and look at um, verse number 13. Jeremiah chapter 23, and verse number 13. Uh, reads he said I have seen the folly in the prophets of Samaria they prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err look also at verse number 21 of the same book same chapter 21 verse 21 he says I have not sent these prophets yet they ran I have not spoken to them yet they prophesied Jeremiah had to battle false prophets in his day. We have got to battle the same practice today. People claiming to have the prophetic gift. They don't have the prophetic gift. And they're making all kinds of claims. The question is, how do you judge a true prophet from a false prophet? And I'll explain that to you. This is what Paul is talking about here, by the way. I'll explain what he means by when he says, according to the proportion of faith. I want to look at one other passage. Uh, look at the Jeremiah. Look at Ezekiel, the next book after Jeremiah. 
and look at verse number Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 1 to 3 quickly and the word of the Lord came unto me saying son of man prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy and say thou, thus, uh, thou unto, unto them the, the prophecy out of their own hearts hear ye the word of the Lord Thus saith the Lord, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirits and have seen nothing. <laughs> See the danger? So when Paul is here dealing with the prophetic gift, he has to set some parameters so that you can know whether or not the prophet who claims to be a prophet have this gift is indeed a prophet of God. Now when you leave the Old Testament and you come into the New Testament, you would have thought that the false prophets would have learned something, but they learned nothing. Because they are people who are deceived. You find that they are also false prophets in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13 verse 6. Paul meets a prophet who claims to be a prophet. A man called Elymas who was also a sorcerer. You ever heard that yet? A man claiming to be a prophet of God but yet he's a sorcerer. He's involved in the occult. He's involved in divination. He's involved in necromancy. He's involved in spiritism, but yet he's a prophet. And Paul has to deal with him in Acts chapter 13. The apostle John also writing says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits. Men that claim to speak for the spirit of God, but test, don't believe everything you hear. Test them, prove them. God has given spiritual gifts, but there's always someone who wants to imitate that gift. Claim that gift that doesn't have that gift. Mislead the church. And that's why there have to be some tests that is given in this regard. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter says, As there were false prophets of old, even so there should be false prophets among you. First Peter chapter 2 verse 1. In First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 and 2, Paul said, The Spirit expressly speaketh that in the latter days many shall depart from the faith, and give heed to seducing spirits. Seducing spirits. Evil spirits. That lead them to think that they are the people of God. Let me ask you here this morning a simple question. Are you aware that when all this emphasis on speaking in tongues is given, the Mormons speak in tongues. The Catholics speak in tongues. The witch doctors in Africa speak in tongues. Should, should that not say something to you? In other words, there is a real thing and there's a false thing. I'm saying all of that to let you know that you must always exercise discernment on these matters. And you must let whatever you are practicing, there always are parameters that God sets in the use of that gift so that the believer is not deceived by that which is false. It's very important. Then, of course, in 2 Timothy, Paul said the time will come whether or not endure sound doctrine, but will heed to themselves teachers having itching ears. Teachers according to their own hearts, their own desires. Paul is talking about that. And, of course, Matthew chapter 24, our Lord himself again and again says that there will be many false prophets. Many false prophets. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the guidelines that Paul gave for exercising the gift of prophecy.
If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.